you know, what we do in, in CISA, we, well, first, we're, we're responsible for protecting the .gov network, right? The federal network for cybersecurity. But probably about, say, probably 80, 90 percent of what we do is, is preparedness, right? It's, it's prevention by doing preparedness, by assessing risk, and then trying to mitigate those risks. there in podcast land, you have the distinct fortune today that you have found your way to Structurally Sound, the podcast, the Institute for Homeland Security here at Sam Houston State University, where you can hear about what is happening in critical infrastructure industries, leverage new knowledge and perspectives to be more secure. New knowledge? New knowledge. Okay. Yeah. You're doing so good. I know. That was real smooth. That is actually almost better than the last time. Go ahead. Can we talk strategery too? Strategery (laughs) and edumacation? Yes. Yes. (laughs) We just totally threw him off. I am, in fact, a bear cat (laughs) in grad school here. And uh, as the the semester is winding down, we are still winding up and uh, keeping our activities on the hop, we're very busy. We just completed a revision to our knowledge series of coursework that we have at IHS. And thank you to everyone who has offered your feedback to help us make those courses more in tune with what industry needs. Later on in December, we'll be wrapping up our live leadership series in Brownsville, Texas, with our partner there to bring you those courses, Texas Southmost College. And we'll be offering our first ever in the skills series of courses as we get some hands-on experience flying drones and our learners will be practicing uh, their new skills and learning how this technology can support security and resilience missions at their companies. I'm Grant Threet, project manager at Institute for Homeland Security, your host and joined with my co-hosts, as always, Michael Asplund, the director at IHS, and Marcus Funk from the uh, Department of Communications here mass at Sam communications. Houston. Mass communications. Mass communications. Strike two. Very important, the mass, you know, it's everybody. And I'm out. No, today we've, we're excited. Uh, we've, we've got a guest here in studio today, Studio 310 at the Dan Rather Communications Building here on campus in Huntsville. We were talking with... Julio Gonzalez from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Mike? You ruined it. You absolutely ruined that. This is strike three. I'm, and I'm out. You're out. Uh, I've been fired yet today, but there we go. I didn't say it. I was thinking about it. You're on probation. Oh. Double secret probation. Uh, I want to welcome Marcus. Thanks, my man on the street. And for those who, uh, if you've listened to the podcast uh, we started with him just being sort of the engineer, director, editor, and then I brought him in like within five seconds of the first podcast and said, hey, you're uh, you're their man on the street who doesn't know anything. I was going to intro by saying we're here to talk about CISA. What does that stand for? And you would have. But guess what? What does it stand for? Um Oh, it's cybersecurity. Don't look down. You don't know. <laughs> I don't think I, I can even. Cybersecurity stuff. It's it's firewalls and tech stuff. And... <laughs> Thanks for playing. Tell him what he's won, Tulio. Uh, he hasn't won anything yet. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a problem. Like when you have a, a foreign last name, 
It's like everybody forgets the second part of our last name. Everybody just says cybersecurity. Oh, it's a cybersecurity agency. But it's actually the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. We do security. If you didn't realize that, we had to put it twice in our name. So, so we, we do deal with the cyber you know, stuff and, and all the new vulnerabilities and threats. But we also work with actual physical critical infrastructure. So your water utilities, your oil and gas assets. And so we, we work on that fiscal security world as well and uh, work with resiliency and continuity of operations and how do we keep things running when, when we have a bad day. So uh, as is our custom for our uh, institute or our podcast, uh, I'd like, can you please kind of share your story and how you, you know, start, you don't need to go back to when you were two. Let's start with the, you don't want to know the name of my second grade teacher. You're say, do you probably, do you know it? Rodriguez. Yeah, oh, okay. absolutely. Yes. Yes. That's good. All One right. of my favorite teachers. Irrelevant, but okay. good. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like, Disruptive, but helpful. Not even there. <laughs> no, it's just we, disruptive. Just disruptive. Just disruptive. Okay. We're, we so, haven't got to the helpful part. Julio, who are you and, you know, what shaped you and brought you into this world of critical infrastructure protection? Excellent. So, yeah. So, my name is Julio Gonzalez, uh, originally from uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. And, you know, the first uh, interaction I got uh, with critical infrastructure was when I joined the, the U.S. Coast Guard back in uh, 2001. I actually uh, joined a, it's called the College Student Pre-Commissioning Initiative, which basically is looking to recruit uh, junior officers that are in their second year of college. The Coast Guard pays for your last years of college, then they ship you out to hold New London, Connecticut, and they make you an officer, and then you, you, you go. So I had the opportunity after officer candidate school to uh, this is right after 9-11. Right. I, so I wanted to kind of get to date to context here. So, yeah, so when, when did 9-11 happen in the in this So journey? I was, uh, this was June of 2001. So it was right before 9-11. Uh, funny story. I just uh, was uh, about to get married. And uh, my wife was concerned because it's the military, right? If you're going to the military, how's that going to work? I said, baby, don't worry about it. First of all, it's the Coast Guard. And second, we haven't had a ward since the 90s. Then uh, I come back from boot camp on July 27th, uh, 2001. And then we moved in together a month later. And then 9-11 happened. And the first thing I remember is, you know, Bush, President Bush saying, we're going to war. <laughs> and my wife looked at me and was like, I thought you promised. You said that we weren't going to have to worry about that. And I was Not like, my well, fault. isn't it funny how blame just flows? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so, so I had the opportunity. So this is post, post 9-11. Really. So I'm just, I know I'm jumping in on you, but so what did that mean for you in terms of what happened just as a, what, what, what how did that impact you? I, I always knew that I wanted to be in not government service, but in public service. And the reason that I picked, you know, out of the, the five military services, the reason I picked the Coast Guard is because I thought, you know, their mission was very valuable. Is, you know, we, we do search and rescue, we care for the environment, we're helping people out. Not that the other four services, you know, don't do stuff like that, but that's not their primary mission. So I always liked the law enforcement, like the, you know, counter drug and the motion. So when 9-11 happened, it was like, this was perfect for me. It's like, here we are doing a mission of value. Then, you know, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, 
now we're taking care of the homeland, which is, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't necessarily want it to be in a foreign country. I wanted to be helping out here at home. So uh, that meant a lot to me um, while I was. So did you get, uh, I guess where I was looking for is, so did you automatically get sent somewhere or were you fortunate? Negative. Because I was, so I was fortunate enough to, because the government has already spent so much money in my college. They said, no, you go finish what you need to do. However, while I was going to college, I had the opportunity to work with the active duty folks um, that were back then. It was, it was called the Sea Marshal Program. Um, that was in response to the 9-11. And basically what those guys did was go offshore and do boardings on foreign vessels and, you know, make sure that everybody that's on board is clear to come in and making sure there's nothing wrong with the vessel before they come into the So into I've never, sport. that's actually new information to me that I didn't realize that we had a sea marshal program. So we, we don't anymore. So that was the initial response. Uh, it was like, how do we deputize and give the Coast Guard that law enforcement ump? Right. But you had that before, though. Right? So we do, we do right? Maritime yeah. law enforcement, the Coast Guard has always done that, but they were looking for that extra, you know, our, our, the authority is for at, at sea. And they were right. looking at how do we get them into the, the port facilities, right? Which you're no longer in the water. How do we expand that jurisdiction to the Coast Guard? And the way they did it was deputizing our law enforcement officers through the uh, U.S. Marshals. So you get through that those that first year or so, and then where did the career take you at that point? So after that, you know, went to Officer Candidate School, actually sent me right back to Puerto Rico. So I got an opportunity to uh, work, establish the Area Maritime Security Committee in Puerto Rico in response to the Maritime Transportation Security Act of 2002. So I worked through that implementation process. And so when I went to Officer Candidate School, the assignment officer is like, oh, Check this out. We have actually an MTSA uh, billet back in Puerto Rico. You already know the facilities. You already know the people. So I get the opportunity. An MTSA is Maritime Transportation Security Act, okay. which gives no longer need the the sea marshals, quote unquote, because uh, now the Coast Guard was given the authority to have to have jurisdiction in on land at maritime facilities. So, so you and I uh, got to hang out. Earlier this week, and share an adult beverage or two. And I'm not going to admit or deny that, but I just know that as to the we, hanging out or to the adult beverage, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> I think the best thing was they had this um, bingo um, '80s music night, and there were only two of us in the lobby of the hotel. So the first two rounds we won, which was awesome. That was amazing. Uh, and then other people came, but we were out of there at that point. You, um, what I appreciated is, as we got comfortable, uh, you started telling stories. So, uh, <laughs> I think it's a, you know, talk about, let's, you know, you, talk about the drug interdiction stuff. And especially there's that one story about what you discovered and just yeah, give the, kind of give the context and. You know, so, so it was interesting. I think it was, it was one of those things. So my, my law enforcement team was more, it was very focused on, uh, the Homeland Security Mission, the, the, the protection of, of critical port infrastructure and all that. It just so happens that uh, in that time for that one incident, uh, the Coast Guard uh, had just adopted a, a ship from the Navy um, and they send them out to the Caribbean where, you know, obviously drug runners, it, that was the flavor of the day. Um, but they forgot to put a law enforcement team on board. Uh, they had enough people qualify for it. Uh, we had one of our law enforcement detachment teams that were doing 
boarding on a vessel somewhere in the middle of the Caribbean and they needed to be relieved because they had somewhere else to go. So they call me uh, and say, hey, your team's getting underway. It's like, okay, where are we going? It's like, we'll tell you when you get to the boat. And, Surprise. Uh, <laughs> so that was like about, uh, it turned into about a week and some change. Uh, we went, we did the, the relief of the, of the team and uh, we found somewhere around 80, at, at the end of like about a two-week search, um, we had to bring the vessel into the pier to be able to continue our search. And uh, eventually uh, we, we found the, the drugs. Um, and that was, uh, that, was, that was pretty exciting. How much? How much? About, it was about 80 um, uh, big bales of, of cocaine. 80 so, bales of cocaine. So, Not 80 <laughs> bales of marijuana, but 80 bales. Yeah. Of, Hidden well so enough it was, that it took two weeks to find. Well, <laughs> so, you know, the, this, guys get, the, this guys get pretty, uh, I mean, you, you got 180, it was about 180 foot uh, vessel. So there's plenty of places that you need to look for. And in this case, uh, it, I mean, they know how to do this, right? Uh, one of the things that we found was is, is when we found the hatch to go into that void uh, where the stuff was, it actually was filled with sand and ammonia. Mm, so off the dogs. Yeah, exactly. So when you, when we put the, cause we thought, all right, we're going to the port and now we can bring in the canines and they'll do the work for us and we'll find it right away. And, can't tell you how many passes we did. And it's like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was standing right there and that thing was right below my feet and we just didn't know about it. So it was, it was an interesting time. So you just remind me of a story of there's, as a police officer, I would go to assist narcotics, the, the narc detectives. Uh, and so I, I was sent to a house one day and said, look, the guy was dealing from the porch. We know his stash is around here somewhere. You got to find it. So I'm standing on a porch. It's no bigger than our, our, uh, studio here and I cannot find it. And I'm getting frustrated because it's like, you know, it's there. And so I finally had to tell myself and, and no dog. Um, so I had to just stop and say, okay, I'm going to start all over. Let's just start all over. And I stepped back. I remember stepping back and just surveying what I was seeing. And then for the very first time I looked down and saw the bike with the bike rim and reached up under the bike rim, and that's where all of his stash was, was between the tire and the bike rim. But I had looked for an hour, and it's just that idea of, you know, you, you're like, I just, what do I do? And well, you just got to put yourself in the shoes of that person, right, and probably sit around and see, okay, where would I put this thing? Uh, you know, one funny, one funny thing about that story is about two or three weeks, I might have been a little bit over a month after we did that bust, they had the sister ship of the boat, and this was another law enforcement detachment team. Well, in this case, the the crew members on the boat um, opened the sea chest to try to sink the vessel before. And so they called me and said, we have a detachment team. The vessel is sinking. Where was it that you guys found it? Because it's a sister ship. So it's got to be the same thing. So we tell the guys and that we're able to get enough drugs out of it to be able to do convictions That's uh, awesome. before the whole ship went down. But talk about a crazy call at two o'clock in the morning. You wake up and you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, okay, really fast. Let me connect you. And it's like, okay. You know, and you're talking to this guy. He's like, water's coming in. Can you hurry up? Tell me what this thing is at. <laughs> oh, wow. It's all about relationships all and about who to make that phone call. And uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. Again, I'm throwing my little cop story in here, but we had this guy who had killed his wife in the city of Monterey, which is a good 10-hour drive down to the border. And the information was he was going to the border. So in, out of San, uh, San Ysidro, which is San Diego. So I had gone to college with uh, 
a woman who was uh, with Border Patrol and I had her cell phone. So I call up Kathy. Kathy was either in D.C. or in Texas. I said, hey, I got a murder suspect heading to, I think heading to San Diego, got a vehicle and a plate. Is there anybody you know I can call? Yeah, call this number. Tell him that I told you that I directed you. So I call this guy, picks up. You know, it wasn't even the main line. And I said, this is who I am. This is what I have going. He says, I give him all the information. And then his response was, okay, we'll close the border. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm an assistant police chief. Uh, and, and, uh, no, mm, uh, headline, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whatever you think your procedures are, I'm not going to tell right, you. Right, right. you know, and then he, he detected my hesitation. He started laughing because we're like, you turkey. And basically they had vehicle license re- recognition software that they could plug it in and see if he was going to be within three miles. So, which was cool. We didn't get him. Eventually he was uh, caught, brought back to the U.S. He's doing life. Uh, but it's that idea of relationships. And I know we, one of our uh, focuses, we have three, which is building a trusted network or research and education. And this is just a good example of why relationships matter, why it's important to establish those relations, have those connections, know who to call, because in the pinch, you just don't know how you're going to get something done. Now, you talked about middle of the night, 2 a.m. call. There was another story you told me. Oh, about, the one about the random patrols? That's the one. That's what I was hoping you'd get to. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was all about, you know, being random and, you know, you know, government, right? Even the military is the same thing. Random. Is it, is it really random? Like, are we getting orders ahead of time? So, uh, you know, the guys were doing patrols all the time and it's like, it was, it was like a scheduled patrol, but it was quote unquote random. Yeah. It's either going to be after lunch or right before lunch or... You know, sometime around two o'clock when you're on your way back to the base. And uh, once and criminals pay attention and, to that. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. One thing that we started doing, it was like, just let's just be random. So one day, you know, we show up two o'clock. We, in the no, after- no, no. You. I show up at two o'clock in the afternoon and said, I'll see you guys tomorrow at midnight or tonight at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. Like, what do you mean? So like, we're doing a random patrol. And- hold on. Hold on. See, I always get these stories in more detail. So I recall this stuff. So it starts with, hey, guys. Go ahead home early. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> get a nap. Say hi to your family. Have dinner. And I want you back here. I think you told me one, but one you, o'clock. One, it, it doesn't it, matter. It, yeah. it was late in the middle of the night. Yeah. And and we're gonna go do, do like, patrols. What? You want us to do what? You to this do is what? on a Friday. Um, I really can't. It was oh, sometime okay. during yeah, sure sometime during the week. So off yeah. you go, and so off we go. And after a few times that we did that, the guys actually ended up making a seizure. They they found these two vans and they were basically taking drugs out of a container and throwing it in the back of the vans. Very comfortable, right? Was, they, they were they were not worried. They didn't have any weapons. There's there's very. I remember chillax. this is this was Puerto Rico. Yeah. So his crew jumps out of the shadows and and, and we we catch them. And then we called the local PDs and all that. And, and they didn't run because they thought, oh, this is local PD. Yeah, this is local PD. It's like, Which oh, no, this is federal right now. And uh, <laughs> now it's a big sting of it, you know, and th- it's not the poor police and all that. You know, th- there's, a- again, it's just like every other industry. You have your, you know, your criminal organizations. They know how to infiltrate and how to how to work system, right? Um, so that actually paid out really good. Then, then CBP started to do the same thing with us, you know, and then, then we were partnering up and it, it was productive for a while. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So moving on from your, I just thought we got two stories out of you. I was only looking for yeah. one. That's fine. Uh, moving on to your career. So how do you then wind up ultimately being with uh, CISA? With CISA. So 
So I did my career in the Coast Guard. Like I said, I was doing critical infrastructure assessments from the very beginning in 2001 uh, through most of my career. Then I had to do two tours in uh, headquarters, one as a recruiter, actually managing the pre-commissioning program that I came through. So that was very neat to do. Um, and then the second admin tour was uh, as an admiral's aide for our CFO. So that was a very interesting to understand government budget. And then here in Houston, uh, from 2010 to 2013, I was a command duty officer, which is basically the, the manager of the operations center for, for this area. So overseeing all the missions and being the guy that gets the calls at two o'clock in the morning and determines, do I need to wake up my boss or not for this? And if not, let's just issue. Uh, do we shut down um, the border? Um, mm-hmm. So Exactly. Yeah. Forward to that. Disruptive, but helpful. Could be helpful. Um, <laughs> so after that, got out of the Coast Guard, got out of active duty, worked for industry for about a year uh, as a uh, uh, oil pollution uh, responder. And then after that, got the opportunity to be a port security specialist, which is essentially the same job I did in active duty for critical infrastructure as a civilian here in Houston. I uh, did that for about three years. And then the position for the protective security advisor for Houston, you know, guy was retiring, uh, good old Mike Maka. And he goes, we're at a meeting one day. He goes, I'm retiring. I said, like, are you serious? Cause you've been saying this for two years. He goes, no, it's for real. You need to apply to this job. And that's how I ended up here. So, most of my background with critical infrastructure was in the maritime sector, in the oil and gas. So coming to this job where we're talk about networking, right, um, and and knowing who to call at two o'clock in the morning. Now I went from one uh, from two sectors that I used to touch to now the other all sixteen sectors. So it was a neat experience to be exposed to. Oh, we have a you know MLB World Series coming uh, to Houston. Okay. How do I work with this, you know, with the stadium? And so it was a little bit of a learning curve, but then pretty quickly realizes, you know, it's just, it's a different venue, but the concepts, you know, they're all applicable. It's all about the preparedness, the having a plan, then how do you do continuity? If something does happen, you, you got to play all those what if scenarios, but it was definitely a new, new ch- it was the same job, but with new challenges. Let me just jump in. You made a reference to 16 sectors. The um, there are 16 critical infrastructure sectors as defined by the federal government. We at Sam Houston focused initially focused on transportation, energy, chemical, and healthcare. This round, this time, these next two year cycle for us, we're looking at critical manufacturing, uh, commercial facilities, information systems, and water and wastewater. Point I want to make is we're going to talk about employment opportunities and how to prepare for that with uh, CISA. Before we get, but I just want people to understand that there are 16 possible paths for critical infrastructure. Absolutely. And, and not, not any one person can be a full expert on every sector, right? So as a protective security advisor, here's our, our currency is relationships, right? I can't be an expert on every single sector. So I just need to know who are the experts in those sectors. And I have to have a relationship that's well established to when I get a you know phone call at two o'clock in the morning and I say, oh, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but let me call Joe because I know Joe will know. And if he doesn't know, he'll know somebody who will know. Although CISA is only five years old, the Protected Security Advisor Program was actually, uh, it began in 2004. 
when the, the Department of Homeland Security was established. And the thought process was they wanted to have a PSA on every state attached to the state Homeland Security Advisor. So uh, you, you were the single point of contact for DHS for that state. And then eventually it grew to where it is right now, which where I think we're somewhere in the 160 uh, plus and growing as, so, as advisors. So let's talk about, you know, there's when when you talk. So uh, I'm going to go to the man on the street. If I say FEMA, tell me what FEMA is. The Federal Emergency Management Association, something agency. like that. Agency. agency. Yeah, close enough. What do they do? Uh, they do a lot of, well, in Houston, it usually comes down to storm recovery and severe weather recovery, that sort of thing. But they tend to come in after a natural disaster and help put the pieces back together. They might have a more, you know, they might do other things too, but that's what first comes to mind. And when I told you that Julio is from CISA, what did you think? What did you know? Nothing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, looking to you, Grant, were you familiar with CISA before you came to IHS? Absolutely not. And we've heard it. I mean, we've heard the acronym. Uh, you pointed out that security's in there twice, which means I'm just going to refer to you the Department of the Redundancy <laughs> Department moving forward. Well, you got to have uh, but, resiliency, right? So well, yeah. Redundancies give you resiliency. There you go. So there there you go. <laughs> cool. I like it. He's so, heard this before. Of course. So can you just kind of... so. For the audience, so you understand the context here, FEMA has regions across the United States. We're in FEMA Region 6. Uh, CISA has the same geographic boundaries as Correct. FEMA. Yes. So in a way, you can say they're a partner organization that does same area of focus, but a different functionalities. Can you just briefly walk us through that? So, so we do have the same geographical area, and I think part of that was, you know, it makes sense the way... FEMA was divided and, uh, you know, so I don't know, somebody tried to make sense out of it. So it would make sense that both two federal agencies have the same footprint. So we don't have one additional thing. You know, what we do in, in CISA, we, well, first, we're, we're responsible for protecting the .gov network, right? The federal network for cybersecurity. But probably about, say, probably 80, 90 percent of what we do is, is preparedness, right? It's, it's prevention by doing preparedness, by assessing risk and then trying to mitigate those risks. So it's a very, you know, post-event, we do work with uh, reconstitution, right? We have a, a big database on critical infrastructure assets. And on top of that, we also look at, um, try to do our best to understand dependencies and interdependencies of those, of that critical infrastructure. So when, you, when you're going into the recovery mode, what do you put priority to? Right. Um, do, do we if, if you do C before you do A and you're forgetting about B, C is not going to work. So how do we rack and stack that that recovery so it makes sense as you're bringing back up all your systems? So that's that's what we do to the right of boom um, on the that's on the PSA side, on the cybersecurity side of the house. Um, it's all about collaborating with all the other federal agencies. Right. That are the responders to an incident. So our cybersecurity advisors focus on helping organizations, one, understand their baseline, understand you know, what they have, understand their system cybersecurity. They help them assess risk, and then they have tools to support or, or to help them mitigate whichever vulnerability they find um, in the system. So again, it's, it's all about prevention and preparedness. Now, after an incident, 
we work with the FBI, we work with the Secret Service, and we're looking for those uh, indicators of compromise, right? What were the key things that allow for this incident to happen? And then we work with, with our fellow agencies to say, okay, what info, can we, we need to release this information so others in the critical infrastructure sector can protect themselves. So that is kind of like the, the homework that we do after the boom is, okay, how do we prevent this? Again, let's, let's get those best practices and push them out to, to our stakeholders so other people don't have the same, you know, they can mitigate and, and identify potential risk. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a, uh, a recent uh, cyber attack in the healthcare system. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, lessons, lessons learned coming from that? Don't use admin passwords. <laughs> Make sure you change them. Gotcha. Uh, wait, wait, wait. It, it wasn't some nefarious wormhole coded you know you'd be surprised person. you'd be surprised you you look at a lot of these incidents and it's like you know in your house ask yourself this question when the you know comcast when you get your comcast uh, router on the mail and you plug it into the wall and you get to go internet is up and running do you ever go and change the admin password of that router that's on the back of it probably, probably not probably not so what that allows is, you know, people assume that those passwords are different or unique, but they're not. So if, you, if I know which router do you have and which router do you use, I can just Google, literally Google the manual for that router. And it's going to tell me that the username is admin and that the password is password one, two, three. Yeah, that's the and, same thing I do when I need to get <laughs> access as an admin to my router. Right. Google it. So, um it's so so now you take that, so that's just your house, right? And it, it, that could have plenty of other unintended consequences, especially if you have somebody that can tap into your internet. And now is your router identification number that's popping up in the FBI because you're watching the wrong things, right? And but that's or not you, or they've launched something nefarious, right? And, and it's coming back to your right. house, and it's coming back to your house, right? Because that, that router has a number, and it just like it has an address, just like your house does. So, so now, t- can you tell us what the what that cyber incident was? We, you and I were actually talking about it. Yeah, so so we were we were talking about that. I, I don't have all the, and you, you're talking about the one that's been on the news the last couple of days. I don't have all the all the details of Ed. Um, but it's a significant impact, you know, to the point that you get hospitals uh, diverting patients. They can't really take patients in because all their systems are, um, you know, they were they were attacked by a ransomware. Um, and and how does that happen? Right. Well, and, you, and there's a number of the, people. People have heard ransomware. What does that mean? So ransomware basically uh, is it locks your files. It locks your system. You can't access. Uh, think about like, um, you know, old school, you have a, you know, the, the little file cabinet and somebody comes in overnight and change the lock on it. So when you come in the next morning, you try to use your key to unlock your file cabinet and your key doesn't work. So that's what ransomware is. And then you get a phone call and says, if you want the new key that I put in your system, you need to pay me however much money for it. Um, so it's very problematic, Right. And then even if you pay the money, is are they really going to send you the key so you can open your file cabinet? Right? So, That's always a risk. So for the hacker that gets into the system and changes that password, why can't 
someone reverse engineer or what what is that issue so we i mean we're we're getting deep into what i feel comfortable talking because i'm not a cyber exer technician but the complexity of that encryption is not something that you can easily um break. And, and right? that's, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and we're, and we're talking about people who may not have changed the admin password on their router. So, the, right. and <laughs> so they're not going to reverse engineer a cyber attack. And, and what I was, I think where I was going to my point earlier is education, right? People just don't know, uh, you know, over the last, what, 20, 30 years, 40 years, as technology has evolved, we've always just worried about technology to work, right? You want your word, you want your email to work. And that was the, the IT concept is we just need the equipment to work. We need the application to work. But nobody was thinking we need to make sure that it works and that it is secure, right? Which is now the, you know, CISA's uh, latest effort in campaign is secure by design. So kind of like with the automobile industry way back in the day, you know, every Automobile was built different with different features. There was no standard. Um, and that's the same thing that happened with applications. Applications were being built as the industry grew. So what was that phrase again? What did you say? By design? What was it? Oh, secure, secure by, by design. design. So interesting. There in law enforcement, we have something called SEPTED, which is crime prevention through environmental design. Correct. And this goes back 20 years. And it sounds like this, the the cyber version of that is now... Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. So here's here's the way the easy way that I explain this is, you know, all these uh, say a few years ago, you know, companies were getting hacked, right? And you know, you, we saw like it happened to Target, it happened to a few others, and it was uh, general everybody. And then and then the companies are getting sued, right? And the government is kind of like, well, how come you didn't protect yourself? And the company's going back and said, well. I didn't design this. I just bought this this thing, right? I bought this car. Now you're going to blame me because I bought a car that had a problem that I didn't know about. Um, so that's I think that's where secure by design is is coming back to. Hey, let's not just go after the customer or, or make the customer fix the problem. We need to go to whoever built it. And when you build it, you got to make sure that is one that works and two that is secure. So that that's kind of like the effort that, you know, compare it to the auto industry. So it's all something relatable. So let's bring it back to from out, out of cybersecurity back to infrastructure. Because that's your, that's your area of focus. Yes. And maybe we can talk about what those positions are within CISA that support that. Um, and I think really what I'd like to get to is what if, if we have people listening who are thinking about careers what does that mean to them? What are these positions? You know, we don't necessarily have to get into the deep, deep details on what each position is, but how do they prepare? If they're thinking here at SAM, we have a security studies program. And when I talk to students and I ask them, what are you going to do when you graduate? I typically get FBI agent, DEA agent, and CISA is not on the list, but it's certainly right. there are opportunities, plenty of opportunities to there, jump in there. There's definitely plenty of opportunities in, in the cyber world. You know, there I think we have a lot more junior positions in the cyber world because it's just it's just growing, right? So um they're doing a pretty good job with that. When it comes to the you know, your protective security advisors, your emergency communications coordinators, uh, we also have election security advisors. Those are pretty very uh, more senior level. And the agency right now is working on, okay, how do we break this down 
to be able to have, you know, growth within within the organization. And so when you ask me, like, what what does what does it take to be a PSA? I'll tell you a little bit about uh, just touch up on my background is I, I know how to do how to conduct and facilitate exercises. I've I've rode homeland security policy. I've you know I've rode national policy. I have the soft skill of managing relationships and in developing those relationships. And also as a PSA is that you can't get away from the fiscal security aspect of doing an assessment and assessing the risk. So I have background in that law enforcement and doing security assessments, right? So that that's a, a very big thing. And then the other part to that is intelligence and information sharing. I, I also have experience on working with the intelligence community, understanding the classification levels, what needs to be classified, what doesn't, what do we share, what we don't share, when we share, right? When there is a need to share information, which is an, a, a huge part of what CISA has been working on over the past, you know, the, the several years that we've been around is that information sharing, you know, cybersecurity we, we need to share the information that we gather in the government and the best practices that we have with the private sector, right? More than 80% of the critical infrastructure in the U.S. is owned by the private sector, right? So how does big government share that information with the private sector so the private sector can take action and defend and protect themselves, right? One of our other campaigns is Shields Up, right? Um, we need to protect. We need to help them. We need to give those, those, the tools uh, and the information for for private sector to to take action. Um, so, as as protective security advisors, as well as our cybersecurity advisors, is how do we share information? So, part of my job when I work with intelligence officers is well, be up to speed as to okay, what what do we have? What do we know? And then help advice. So, we're not only advising the private sector in our state and local government, but we're also advising the intelligence community as to, you probably wanna share this and here's why and here's the impacts. And this is why private sector uh, needs to know this information. So CISA has done a really, really, really good job at you know, decomposing all these, oh, it, it's classified, it's classified. We can't share that. In, in the agency have done a great job as we need to declassify more information so people can actually take action and defend themselves. So it, it sounds like, I mean, what, what I keep thinking and, and hearing from listening to you talk about it is communications um, and uh, experience uh, obviously plays uh, a big part in, in that. And I'm just wondering, you know, from, from your perspective and what you've seen, those who are successful, um, where are they coming from? Um, you know, maybe what have what have they learned? Uh, what's what's their what's their background? What would you advise? So I tell you, we we have a a very diverse workforce, and and I'm going to focus on the on the PSA side of the house. Um, we get a very diverse group. So I tell you, most of the guys in the Gulf Coast um, are either uh, former Navy, former Marines, and former Coast Guard. Is there, again, I, just to jump in real quick, is there value um, in bringing in people who aren't former military, I mean, to, to increase that diversity? Right, even? And, and, and we do have some of those. I think we're starting to, to work on that. We also have, you know, um, people with, that come from FEMA. You know, they have that planning and preparedness background, right? You got you to gotta see, we're going through this transition. Back after post 9-11, 
it was fiscal security, fiscal security, fiscal security, right? So you got it. That military background was just, you know, and that secret service background was essential, right? Because those guys understood what, how do you protect critical infrastructure? Now, as we grow as an organization, then we have, you know, we experience Hurricane Katrina and we figure out, oh, check this out. We have all this information on critical infrastructure and how it is connected. Let me go and let FEMA know, hey, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing because, again, C, you're trying to fix C, but if you don't fix A and B, you're never going to get to C, right? And is that uh, conversation welcomed? It, I mean, I, I wasn't there, but, but it was. It was <laughs> well understood. And I think now we have a, this big effort at, as to you know, focus on understanding the dependencies and interdependencies of our critical infrastructure. You know, if we have seen, and you've seen on the news, like, you know, the, the incident in, uh, was in North Carolina, I believe, that with the substation, the energy substation was shut down. And then later on the news, they said, oh, there was this group that was trying to prevent this event from happening. So, well, you can't attack the event, but if you take out the, sub, the substation, now there's no power. That is just disruption that is not helpful. Right. Why would you concentrate your effort, right? It's harder to hit a target that's protected. But if you can impact something that is exactly. farther away, a dependency of that, you know, it's like, okay, I, you still achieve the same goal. You disrupt, you were disruptive. And that's for, uh, you know, risk, risk planners, risk management Correct. personnel. So I in mean, that continuity of operations exactly. is very important. That planning, it, you know, you got your preparedness. And then when the incident hits, okay, how are we going to do that continuity of operations? I was reflecting upon a successful physical attack on an electric, uh, electrical transfer station in Metcalf, called the Metcalf attack, I believe that's the name of it, in Sa uh, San Jose. And it happened over 10 years ago. Right. Where a guy set up with a rifle, basically, and dumped hundreds of rounds into a transfer station over a period of time. And I, in my, you know, you all don't know it, but I can envision it in my head because it Highway 101, which runs north-south, you'll see it right there. And so some guy set up and basically took out the whole station, which it was an un, nobody defended against that. And right. So what is that, that, that? Those are the kinds of things that, unfortunately, if you're a, if you're a terrorist, an eco-terrorist, there's plenty of ways to disrupt infrastructure. And there's no way that we're going to defend against every possible attack. Right. I mean, and, and you know, for being a former cop is like, there's no, you know, security is never a hundred percent, right? It, it's, it's that 90, you, you get to that as close as you can to that 99%, but it's never going to be secure. And then you have the competition of uh, economics, right? Mm -hmm. And money. It's like security doesn't generate quote unquote. It, it's not a business line that generates money. It's a business line that, expends money. Yes, you're protecting, right? Uh your your assets, but well, you also have insurance. So do do I really like how 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 do we make that argument? And that's a lot of what we do when we start talking to organizations. And, and given we talk to all kinds all across all 16 sectors, you know, the big oil and gas, those guys, you know, they have the money to to invest and they they have capital investment. But when I'm talking to a you know, a house of worship, a church, you know, that, yeah, they, they might be big, but they don't have the kind of funding to invest in security. So we got to bring in those low cost, no cost 
type of recommendations, right? If I go in and say, well, I need you to spend half a million dollars in bollards so you can protect your people. They're like, well, we don't have that kind of money. So what else can we do um, to be able to, to protect, right? And it's all about assessing, understanding the base, baseline of where you're at with your security. And then what kind of steps you can take to, to make it more difficult for an adversary to, to do damage. A couple of things as you got, it's interesting because number one, as you were chatting about, hey, look, you know, the security element of a business does not generate income. And one of the things we talk about constantly is how do we bring the value or convince a C-suite person? And I, that's a new term I had not known until I came here. C-suite is where your CSO, your uh, chief security officer, your chief financial officer, your chief executive officer, on and on, all the C's live. And how do you convince them that this is a value add? How does that how does that expense contribute to bottom line profit from a business perspective? And not, I'm sorry, I know you're like all ready to go. And then the second part, because when you go to them, their answer is insurance will cover that. Right. So, you know, and, and, and it's interesting on the, on the cyber, I think on the fiscal security side of the house is uh, it's a little bit easier to make, make an argument, right? Because when you have a kinetic attack or a kinetic, an incident, you see the fire, you see the fence down, you see the, the, the structure is no longer there. But when you talk about the cyber side of the house, look at it right now. We talked about the hospitals. We talked, you know, in the news, you have the water utilities that are having being impacted right now by a cyber attack. But is anybody paying, like, is it all over the news? It's, it's really, it is, but it isn't because there's nothing flary to look at. Right? Well, right? We, were, we were over at Horseshoe Bay, which is east of Austin this week, talking to the water uh group there, a water group. Uh, and one of the things they said was, look, we need to convince the water operator on the plant why cybersecurity is important because for them, they don't think that way. So we're, we're kind of at the end and, and I hate to stop the conversation. Now I do want to make an observation. Marcus, typically you jump in two or three times. You have not done so this episode. Is that means that, I'm doing a good job. Is that because, I mean, why was that? What's your reflection? So, no, I'm just listening. But what strikes me about all of it is that there's sort of an irony that we think about big, epic preparations for big, epic problems. But most of the things y'all have all described seem not maybe not easy to prevent, but simple, like a ransomware, like a right. like a password thing, like a some jackass with a rifle just shooting at a, a power station. They might be difficult to stop, but they're also relatively simple. And we see that in the media literacy world too. A lot of what we consider disinformation, it's not complicated. It's just trying right. to get a quick, easy, dirty response and, out of it. And you know, when you when you look at, at hackers is you they go through the path of least resistance. Right. And and that's what I'm saying is like everybody everybody thinks that most of these attacks are very complex, very, you know, sponsored by a nation state and all that. Yes, there is some of that. But your criminal organizations are looking at just the common vulner vulnerabilities. It's like, all right, people didn't change their password. Let me see who I can get. Right. And they make money out of it. So when the cyber world, you know, you would solve probably like 80 percent of the problems by teaching people think before you click. Right. If if you have an email account, your work email account, and all of a sudden you get an email from Amazon, which your work account is not registered to your 
Amazon account, right? It's registered to your personal email. Think about and it. And then all of a sudden you're not thinking about it and you just click on it and it's boom. It's, that's how people get access into your facility. And then once they get a foothold in, you know, they start trying to move around and find other credentials, a.k.a. find other keys where they can open other doors until they get what they need to get. Um, so education is a big, it's a big, big, big deal. And again, our PSAs, our CSAs, a lot of the effort that CSA does is to educate people, right? At the same time that we're protecting our critical infrastructure. Julio, this has been great. And uh, I, I just wanted to ask uh, how our, our listeners, if they're interested, how would they reach out to a, a PSA, whether that's yourself or or a CSA, how, how, how would they get a hold of CISA? So the, the easiest way is go to the uh, CISA.gov uh, website. And in there, you can find all the contact information. There's so many tools and resources in there. You have everything from uh, tabletop exercises that are already laid out with objectives and stuff. All you got to do is change the, your, your organization name. There's plenty of documents about best practices and things that we have learned from other incidents. Um, there, there is a lot of information on our website. So I'm not a guy that goes and looks at a website. If I'm that guy that wants to connect with Julio, a buddy, how do I get, how do I get there? And I'm going to answer you. I'm not I'm putting you on the spot. All you have to do folks is reach out here to IHS and you can send an email to our general mailbox which I believe is IHS at shsu.edu or we'll rep, but we'll put that information in the notes and we are more than happy to connect you to Julio directly. So you can save some time. I'll, I'll make sure to connect with uh, Mike and Jeremy, which are my other two PSAs that felt free since they're not here. You know, we'll I just, see you put them we'll, up. We'll tack them. And <laughs> yeah. then <You> guys listening, <laughs> they weren't here. They get the action. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that what, how it goes? Thank you, Julio, for being here. It's been great. And uh, anyone can learn more about activities going on here at IHS by checking out our website at ihsonline.org. You'll find information about our call for research topics, educational offerings, and other ways to connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Well, we're not done. Oh, because here at IHS, we are disruptive, but helpful. Have a great day, everybody. Structurally Sound is the podcast for the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University. It is supported by the College of Criminal Justice and the Mass Communication Department. Our hosts are Michael Asplin, Grant Threat, and Marcus Funk, who also produces and edits the show. Our music was written by Kevin Clifton, and the artwork was created by the Idea Factory, part of the Department of Art at Sam Houston State. Additional support comes from Shannon Lane, Rose Cater, Charles Henson's, and enthusiastic Bearcats everywhere.